Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we are in our journey through the gospel of John that we started at the beginning of the year. And we find ourselves in this beautiful chapter. We're beginning a section of John where the writer, the Apostle John, is about to highlight several interactions with Jesus and individuals. We've, we've seen the setup of Jesus' ministry prepared, the way prepared in the desert by John the Baptist and the testimony of who he is and, and Jesus' famous conversation with Nicodemus and chapter 3, and now we come to chapter 4, where Jesus is going to meet a woman at a well. It's one of the more well-known and famous and beautiful stories in the whole Bible. Uh, This is one of those passages that we could spend so much time in. In fact, one of my heroes in ministry is a Welsh preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and there's a little app I've told you about before where you can listen to some of his sermons. He preached in London back in the mid-1900s. And uh, on this particular passage here, he preached about 12 sermons on just two verses. Um, We're not going to go quite that slow, and you can all exhale at this moment, but we are going to spend at least a few weeks in this wonderful story. Now here's the the morning as it, it, Lord willing, will go. We're going to cover the first 15 verses or so, just the half of this interaction that Jesus has with this woman, and then handle the rest of it in the coming weeks. And after we look at this text, we're going to have the privilege to see two new members be baptized and celebrate the gospel through water baptism. But here's what I want to do this morning, is we're going to read a little bit as we go, stop, comment along the way, and then, and then summarize with some observations about this text. Now, I'm not going to tell you how many observations I have. Well, I have four, but I don't know if we're going to get to all of them. Uh, because this, this story is so rich, and I just feel like this may just be in this Sunday and the Sundays to come, just one of those rabbit trail Sundays, you know, because there's so much in this passage. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we need you. As we just sang, we long to see your face. So in this moment, would we receive grace upon grace? Help us to cut out the clutter. Lord, the the deepest need of every soul in this room is to see Jesus clearly. Whether we've known him for years, we need to be be freshly amazed at the beauty that is our Savior. For those that came into this room not knowing him or that are listening online, that are not yet trusting in Christ, may they see the beauty and the compassion and the kindness and the authority and the grace of Christ, and may they be wooed by it. May it become so beautiful that it's irresistible. And may you give a new heart to any unbelieving souls that are listening so that they can trust in Jesus. Make much of yourself this morning, Lord, in the preaching of your word. We don't want to just get through this day. This isn't just a religious ritual. This isn't just Sunday in the south where we go to church and Go to lunch and talk about people. 
Lord, we want to see you face to face. We need to see you. We, like this woman, need an encounter with Christ today. So help me help these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John chapter 4, verse 1. Actually, I, I instinctively reach for my glasses, but <clears throat> I found out a while ago on your computer you can make the font bigger, and so I've, I've done that. So it's just a nervous habit. I just go for the glasses. <laughs> Remember that time I dropped them and stepped on them accidentally a couple years ago? Now, verse 1, John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, meaning John the Baptist. Remember when we're reading here in the early chapters of John, we need to distinguish between John the Apostle, who's the writer of this gospel, according to John, and then John the Baptist, two different Johns. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And let's just pause there and just ask the question, why did Jesus leave? I mean, ministry is going well. He has, he has done a bunch of miracles and he has uh, had this conversation with Nicodemus. Crowds are being drawn. He has turned the, 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 the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Word is getting out. People are coming to Jesus The whole purpose of the ministry of John the Baptist was to point people to Jesus. That's happening. And here, Jesus is, strangely, it just sort of is, it seems to, and this is something that happens throughout the Gospels, where Jesus just does something that seems counterintuitive to our modern ears, where where we might think, capitalize on the moment, draw the crowd, make a big deal. Jesus often goes in the other direction, and he does here. He departs and goes to Galilee. Why is that? Well, I think probably what's going on there is that Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows. He doesn't want to get caught up in a popularity contest, first of all, with his, with his forerunner, with his, his cousin John, and he doesn't want to cater to the fickleness of the crowd. In fact, he leaves the, the, the gathering multitudes to have an intentional one-on-one conversation with a woman way out of the way who, would have been an, who was an unlikely co- candidate for grace. Just, I just Before we move on, let's just contrast Jesus' ministry model and what he viewed as success with how we instinctively think about success in our culture, even in our church culture. Jesus leaves the crowds to go seek out this one. Verse 4 And he had to, pay attention to that phrase, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, where Jesus was, it's true that geographically, the most direct route to go to where he was going was to go through Samaria. But it wasn't that he had to do that. There was No real geographical necessity. It's not like it was through some mountain pass or it was bordered on each side by some, you know, water. He could have gone around Samaria. In fact, listen to this, that would have been the normal route for most righteous Jews. They would have intentionally 
gone around, they would have avoided the area of Samaria because they would have wanted to avoid the Samaritans. Why would they have wanted to avoid the Samaritans? Well, we need to understand who the Samaritans are, and this will factor huge in this story. The Samaritans were a group of people that we see began around 722 BC. So Israel is in the Old Testament one nation, and they are, they, are, they are disobeying God. That's really the history of God's people in the Old Testament. He forms them out of nothing. He makes them a nation. He's so good to them, but yet they disobey him. Really, the story of Israel as a nation, as a people group in the Old Testament, is kind of like the story of our salvation and our sanctification. It's kind of a, a, a picture of the Christian life in many ways. God's grace despite our hard-heartedness. And so God, God is speaking to his nation, Israel, in the Old Testament, specifically in 2 Kings, and he's saying that if you keep rebelling against me, I'm going to give you over to foreign captors. And in fact, that does happen. The Assyrians come in and they capture Israel and they carry off and they divide and plunder the nation and the nation splits and, and terrible things happen in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. We're in about 2 Kings chapter 17 at this point. And there is this foreign Assyrian king who then imports all of these foreigners into this region of Israel called Samaria. And these foreigners with their false gods and their idolatry start to intermarry with the few remaining Jews that were there in the region of Samaria. And this, this group of people that arises from this mess of Israel's rebellion and judgment, and then these foreign idolaters coming into this region of Samaria, which was in Israel, gave way to or produced this group of people called then the Samaritans that then were rivals. They were hated by religious Jews because they were idolaters, because they had a kind of syncretistic, which is a kind of mixture of Old Testament uh, the truth and their own false gods that were imported from all these other cultures. And so it was just a theological mix. And there was, through the centuries, a great rivalry between Jews who wanted to be righteous and live by the Old Testament and these, this, this group, this new group of people that were really created by Israel's rebellion, these Samaritans, who believed in a sense in the first five books of the Old Testament, but added a bunch of other things in it, and it was just a kind of idolatrous mix of sort of like folk religion. And so the average Jew that wanted to honor God in the first century would have been at odds with the Samaritans. They, would have, they represented this failure in Israel's past. They represented this, this mixture with false religion. And so it would have been taboo for a Jew wanting to be righteous to even mix in any way, way with these Samaritans. And so, although it was geographically possible to go through, in fact, the shortest distance to go through Samaria, any righteous, self-respecting Jew would have gone around Samaria to get to where he was going. But it says here that Jesus had to. What's going on there? This is a kind of clue that John, the gospel writer, is giving us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there's a kind of 
divine necessity, a kind of providence that is pushing Jesus to go through Samaria so that he would interact with his one woman. We see just a clue of this setup of this divine engagement and appointment between Jesus and this woman. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So what's significant about that? I think just it's, this is just all throughout the New Testament and, and the narrative of the Gospels. You just see these allusions to real places that are mentioned in the Old Testament. This is hearkening all the way back to Genesis when Jacob gave his well to his son Joseph. And so why is that in there? Why is that little detail in there? Because the Bible is not a, it's not a mythology, it's not a fable, it's a historical book about real people in a real place who did real things. And that, even just that little clue, is a kind of historical evidence of the reality of the Bible. And these scenes, these stories, which were historical truths that happened in people's lives. Jacob's well was there. Verse 6, so Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus has probably walked maybe around 20 miles. And the sixth hour is counting from sunup, which would have been 6 o'clock in the morning. And so we're looking at 12 noon. The sun is hot. Jesus has walked a long ways. He is thirsty. And remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus, who is the creator of the world. He's the one who miraculously turned water into wine just two chapters ago. And yet we see Jesus in his divinity in chapter 2. Here we see Jesus in his full humanity. In fact, we're going to see both mixed together in this interaction because when we get to it, Lord willing, next week, we're going to see that Jesus looks into this woman's soul and he tells her about her history, her marital history, about how she, how, about the man that she's living with even now is not her husband and that she's been married five times. And so mixed together, we see Jesus, truly man, fully man, Jesus, truly God, fully God, combined together in the person of Jesus, walking and he's weary. Friends, when we read things like this about the humanity of Jesus, I think it should encourage us that Jesus got tired and that he sat beside a well. We get tired too. One of, one of the greatest uh, uh, figures in my childhood, the, one of the greatest Italian-Americans ever, if I'm, if I'm being honest with you, Vince Lombardi. Great, you guys know who Vince Lombardi is? You should know who Vince Lombardi is. He was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers, and I was the son of an Italian football coach, and so I knew who Vince Lombardi was growing up. And Vince Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And here you see Jesus tired. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be tired. Think about what what brings you to the end of your physical strength, whether it's caring for toddlers. You know, I just, we have a, a church full of young parents, a church full of young mothers. And, and sometimes when I, when I come in here through the foyer to come in and I'll see some young mothers and some young parents checking in, children coming in the front door. And there's just that look on a young family's face and the parents, they look kind of like shell-shocked, like, like mortar rounds just went off next to them. 
and there's just bags under a mother's eyes, and she's got one on her hip. The other one is pulling her other arm out of socket, and the other one is doing laps around the foyer. And you see that, that young parent is just tired. Jesus knows what it is to be tired. And Jesus knows the frailty of your flesh when you're tired. And by the way, let's just be a church that doesn't sort of look down the end of our nose at tired parents whose children aren't perfect. Because how quickly we forget how misbehaved our kids were at the same time. I remember there was a couple years when our children were younger that we knew that there was this thing called restaurants, but we would never venture into them <laughs> for fear of the public scorn. I just, sometimes I just want to just give young parents a standing ovation because they just are here. Praise God for that. And Jesus, Jesus knows what it is to be utterly exhausted. Think about that. God knows that. He doesn't have his arms folded in heaven in disgust at your fatigue. He, he's experienced it himself. He was weary from his journey, sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon, likely. Verse 7, here she comes, this woman from Samaria. And thus begins one of the most beautiful interactions in all of Scripture. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, our text does not say this, but it is no stretch to ask the question and wonder why this woman would be alone at the well at noon. Women, it was their task. The men would do much of the manual labor out in the fields, and the women had more of the domestic chores often around the home. And one of the chores in first century culture would be for women to gather the daily supply of water, which would be a daily event, and they would certainly do it in the early morning hours or in the evening to avoid the hot sun. And they would have to carry these, these, these containers of water, which would at times be upwards of maybe 40 pounds on their head, and you would not want to do that in the middle of the day when the sun was blazing, so why is this woman coming alone? In fact, this was kind of social hour for women as well. It's kind of like play dates at the water well. Plus, the sun wasn't fully up, so it just made sense. It was a social hour, and it certainly was a physically better time to come when the sun was not blazing at 12 noon. So why was this woman coming alone when the sun was hottest, when it was making it most difficult on her physically? Because, and I don't think this is a stretch, I think we can surmise because it was easy, easiest on her relationally because she was a woman of ill repute. This is a woman who had been married five times, and as we'll find out next week, according to what Jesus says as he looks into her soul, was living with a woman who currently was not her husband. Certainly, the town would have known this. Certainly, she would have been an outcast in the community of women there, and to avoid the scorn of the women that she was in community with, she takes it upon herself to make it much harder on herself physically to come in the heat of the day alone. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Jesus 
initiates the conversation with this woman, with this woman, which would have been taboo for a first century Jewish leader to do. For him to even speak to her would have made him ritually unclean. She was a woman, so a man should not approach and talk to a woman uh, that was not his wife in public. That was a no-no. She was uh, obviously living in adultery. That was a no-no. She was a Samaritan. So she's got three strikes against her. And yet Jesus is not hindered by this. He does something which would have been unthinkable for a first century Jewish man to do. He speaks to a woman of ill repute who's a Samaritan, and he says to her, give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples, John adds parenthetically, had gone away into the city to buy food. I just wonder, I just wonder again, this is just speculation, if Jesus sent them to the grocery store because he didn't want them messing up this conversation. (laughs) Boys, here's a list. Go get us some flour and some peanut butter. I've got work to do. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, listen to her response. She instinctively knows who she is, and she thinks she knows who he is. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So there's a kind of defensiveness even in her shame. I mean, what, what are you coming to me for? You shouldn't be talking to me. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. And then John adds something else parenthetically at the end of verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, which, which could also be translated even more literally that Jews don't even touch things that Samaritans touch. So she's, she's handing him this cup. If she hands him this cup, she's sort of saying, why would you, why would you come to me? You're not even supposed to touch the things that I touch because I know what you think about me, that my uncleanness will make you clean. See, that's the way it went in the first century world for the righteous Jew. You had to separate yourself from anything unclean. You had to separate yourself from anything that would make you ritualistically impure before God. But Jesus reverses, we see this all through the Gospels, Jesus reverses the first century mentality of impurity and uncleanness. The uncleanness of the world doesn't jump on Jesus and make him clean. His cleanness invades the uncleanness of the world. Rather than avoiding impurity, he goes to it to purify it. And that's what he does here with this woman. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. Let me just pause here. Let's just think a little bit longer before we get into verse 10 about this woman. Think about her life. Now, again, we're we're just surmising here. So I want to be careful to say we're just surmising. But I imagine that she was living a life controlled by shame. She had five husbands. She was living with a sixth man who was not her husband. Can you imagine? She's, she's coming in the middle of the day when it was the most physically taxing on her to gather this water. No community, no fellowship, making it hard on herself, physically worn down. And this man shows up who she doesn't know who he is, and we can almost... We can almost see in the way she responds to Jesus that there's this kind of defensiveness, there's this hardness, there's this callousness. You know, something that I've noticed, people that are hard on the exterior are often hiding some sort of shame. And we see this, she is just a woman who seems to be controlled by shame. 
Friends, many of us live like this. Many of us to some degree. Shame, shame is a brutal taskmaster. And all of us, to some degree or another, are master concealers of our shame. We're master concealers. We, just, we, we live in such a way where we put up a front. We're hard with the world because the world has been hard on us. And our whole life, it's almost subconscious, I think, for many of us, our whole life is controlled by this subconscious inner voice that tells us, you're not good enough. You're unredeemable. And it will drive a person to do things that they never otherwise would have done, and it will sap a person of all their energy. And it becomes a kind of little God. It's a, that, that, it's a little false God inside of us that controls us. It's like a little invisible remote control where we're just navigated by shame. And we get so used to it that we don't even know that we're controlled by it. Friends, many of us are like that. And certainly it's possible for Christians to be like that. I can even think of instances in my own life where I've lived being dominated by shame. Maybe that's you. Maybe this story is for you. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is now pivoting the conversation, and he's making it spiritual from the physical cup and water to a spiritual application. This really, this encounter is just a, a, an encounter of Jesus evangelizing this woman and drawing her to himself. So what is he saying? What, what is Jesus saying in verse 10? If you really knew who I am and what I meant by give me a drink, you would, you would realize that you should be asking me is what he's saying. I'm the one who has this true water. I'm just using this touch point here as a, as a kind of object lesson to show you what your true need is, essentially, is what's going on in verse 10. Verse 11, obviously still not understanding what Jesus is saying. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Now, when she says living water, she's still thinking about a physical application. She's not all of a sudden it's like realizing what Jesus is saying metaphorically or spiritually about living water. Obviously, Jesus is talking about, about the new birth. He's talking about the, the, the satisfaction of drinking from all that God has done for us through his son. He's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit that will come and, and give us, quench our thirst and reconcile us to God. But when she says living water in verse 11, she's thinking very practically about what would have been a source of water fed by a fresh spring, which would have been desirable. And so she's thinking, yeah, well, you know, where, where do you get this good water? Not water that's sort of been sitting stagnant in some of these other wells. And she says in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And so she is a Samaritan woman, as the Samaritans would, is believing in the Old Testament first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. She's believing in the stories of Jacob, although they didn't quite fully understand and it added a bunch of folklore religions in with it. 
And so she's kind of at least telling her, sort of her, in her folklore, sort of false religion sort of way, her understanding. She's thinking again, still practically, that this well was physically dug by Jacob and that it was a well of living water. She's still thinking about the natural rather than the spiritual. That's this double meaning that's going on here. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, I think verses 13 and 14 are the very heart of this chapter and some of the most important verses in all of John that we'll come back to again and again. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning this this physical water. It's a representation of man's efforts to satisfy himself. This, This physical water takes on that representation for Jesus in this conversation. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the heart of the story. What is Jesus saying? He is pivoting in this conversation to turn it to the true need that every human being has. This natural water, as I just mentioned, represents man's ability to satisfy himself, to make himself right, to cover his shame. The water that Jesus gives that he's speaking of here is metaphorically referring to the spirit, eternal life, trusting in Jesus for reconciliation with God, the holy God. And yet the woman still doesn't understand, although she will, as we'll see next Sunday. But let's end with verse 15 before we conclude with some observations. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So it seems like maybe she's inching her way to understanding. There's a a sense that there's something that Jesus has that's desirable, but she still doesn't quite understand yet because she's still thinking about some physical water. And as we'll see next week, Rather than making it easy on her and just sort of glossing over what her real need is, Jesus presses in and asks her about her husband, knowing full well that the man that she's living with is not her husband. And so Jesus presses in and puts her sin on full display. I mean, he goes in. Jesus is not afraid of awkward conversations. And he does this to press this woman in to realizing what her true need really is. But let's stop there in our look at this story and hold the rest for next week. And let's pause to consider as we end before we see the gospel proclaimed in baptism with just a few observations about Jesus' encounter with this woman at the well. First, just note that Jesus meets us in the ordinary aspects of life. He's not bound by whether things are lined up in our lives or whether everything's just exactly like it should be. Remember what he says to Nicodemus in John chapter three, the wind blows where it wills. Grace is surprising. It comes even when we're in the middle of a rut. In fact, most of life, I think, is a rut. Contrary to what you hear on social media, most of life is not awesome. In fact, awesome is probably the most overused word in the English language. It's awesomely overused. Most of life is just kind of dragging yourself to your daily chores, getting water in the middle of the day, 
hiding from shame. And Jesus breaks into an ordinary movement. He's not bound by it. Jesus isn't bound to the right vibe. That's the word. Kids use, I don't even really know what it means yet. And sometimes I hear a word that kids are using and I'll say it. And then my kids will say, ah, dad, you didn't. No, don't say that. Don't ever say that again. At least don't ever say that publicly when we're around our friends, please. And so I I think I kind of know what vibing means, but maybe I don't. So if I'm embarrassing my children right now, I'm sorry. We'll deal with it later. But Jesus doesn't need a vibe. Jesus doesn't need the atmosphere. He doesn't need mood lights. He doesn't need music playing in the background. He doesn't even need a seeking heart. That's not what's going on in this woman's life. She's not coming after Jesus. He's coming after her. This is really encouraging. And Jesus meets us in the ordinary, not just in evangelism, but in all of life. What should we learn from this is that we should just have an openness and an expectation that Jesus is not bound by an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes, depending on the lengthiness of the preacher, to work on a Sunday morning. Jesus can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, why ever he wants, with whomever he wants. Jesus meets us there. When you're plugging away at that doldrum job, when you're changing that diaper, when you're checking that block, when you're just filled with discontent, and life is so unremarkably ordinary, Jesus, this story is a picture of how Jesus meets us in those moments. Secondly, Jesus comes to us personally. Jesus, this is stunning to me. Jesus leaves the crowds. He leaves the crowds. And he he goes to meet with this woman one-on-one. Now look, praise God for... uh, I I am not going to contradict everything that I say, that we say here often about the necessity of community. Look, if you're a Christian... You need the local church. You need the local church. You were designed. In fact, the Bible is full of metaphors and references to the church being like a body and that we're just members of it. And so you need the local church. You need to be part of a local church. We, we have a process here of membership, which we think is very important. There's no verse in the Bible that says you must join a local church and go through their membership class. It doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it's implied throughout the whole Bible because there's all sorts of exhortations about how we are to live lives of accountability towards one another so that we care for one another. And if somebody claims to be a Christian and they're walking in a direction completely opposite of what it means to be a Christian, those people who that they're in some sort of formal community with have a responsibility to go after that person. And if they continue to refuse to repent and follow Jesus with that group of people that they've committed to, Jesus actually in Matthew 18 tells this group of people called the church that you're actually to remove that person from among you as an act of severe love to hopefully shock that person into repentance. 
Read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And tell me that if, if there's not this thing called a kind of recognized commitment to one another in a physical local church, then what Jesus says in Matthew 18 makes no sense. So I, I, am, I am not in any way wanting to, when I say Jesus comes to us personally, detract from one of the clear truths of Scripture that we are to live in community, that we need one another. The Christian life, listen to me, dear ones, the Christian life is to be lived out in community in the context of an imperfect local church that God uses to sanctify us. But the kingdom, although lived out in community, is entered and must be entered personally, one-on-one. You can't get in because your grandpa was a preacher. Because your mother folded the bulletins or your dad was a deacon. Or you get a bulletin from this and this church. Or, you know, back then we went there. Friends, that clouds modern Americans' understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God. We, we all must deal with Jesus personally when we come to him. And you, can't, you don't have anybody else around. You can't, you can't blame anybody else. Because here, here's the deal about the human life. We, we are all a mysterious mixture of sin that's been committed against us and sin that we have committed against others and most notably God. And so none of us come to God as a victim primarily. We all come to God as perpetrators. And we all must come to God one-on-one. And we can't sneak in the back door because daddy was a deacon or mama played the piano or I went to VBS once or twice and filled out a coloring sheet and raised my hand and said a prayer, but I haven't darkened the doors of a church in 20 years. No, we must come individually and Jesus puts his finger on our sin, on our failure, on our shame and he says to us, do you drink from the water that will give you life? It's a personal call and we have to Cut out the clutter. That's, that's part of the, the, the spiritual fight of American Christians. We, we have to cut out the clutter. I have to cut out the clutter. Not only do I have to come to Jesus personally for my Savior, but as my sustainer, I must come to him daily. Me and Jesus before it's me and you. And I can't say to him, oh, well, the church didn't do this, or these people didn't do that, or, you know, if my family would just do this, or blah, blah, blah. blah. What about you? What about you? Jesus is looking at you. He's coming to you. You will stand before him someday. And if you are a believer, it's you. You must drink from the well of living water. You can't stand on the side and live a life of watching other people drink. You can drink, dear one. You can drink. Don't buy into the lie that you can't understand or that you can't get it or that you can't really understand Jesus. You can. You can. And he comes to you personally and he calls you personally. And know this, that when he comes to you personally, he will leave no stone unturned. See, that's why... I think that's why it's a spiritual battle. That's why we like to hover around on the edge because if we hover around on the edge, we're actually subconsciously self-protecting and we're not letting Jesus actually say to us, wait a minute, you've been married. Who's the guy you're with now? What, 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 six? Oh, 
Okay. But it's never in sarcasm. It's never in shame. Jesus comes tenderly because he knows that what we really need, he loves us too much to leave the stones uncovered. He comes after us, and when he comes after us, it's a grace that he's coming with. So come to Jesus, man. Come to Jesus. And let's be a church that makes it easy for people to come to Jesus. Let's, let's be gracious. Let's, let's, let's have our head on a swivel. Let's be kind. Let's be warm. Let's not be religious snobs. I don't think we are, but man, somebody maybe just somebody needs a reminder about that. You know? Come on. Jesus comes to us personally. Third, Jesus comes. Let me hurry up. Jesus comes to all kinds of people. Here's another spiritual battle. Some of us have believed the self, listen to this, this is going to sound counterintuitive. Some of us have believed the self-exalting lie that we are too bad to be saved. What do you mean self-exalting lie? Think with me, friends. Some of us believe that, well, you don't know what I've done, Jesus, so I'm going to stay on there. This is shame speaking. This is, this is us bowing down to the idol of our past, exalting ourself, even our sin, over the grace of Jesus. Jesus comes to all kinds of people. And look at the contrast that we see in John 3 and John 4. Everybody needs Jesus. Let's just look at it. Nicodemus, a man a religious elite Jew, a teacher, in fact, the teacher of Israel, ceremonially, ceremonially clean. And he comes to Jesus at night. John chapter 4, a woman, an unclean woman, a Samaritan woman no less, an adulterous woman, still even worse. But yet, Strangely, paradoxically, Jesus comes to her in the middle of the day. We might think that Nicodemus had a leg up on the woman at the well in John 4, and that is not true. Both the religious Jew, the sinful Samaritan, both need Jesus equally as much. Friends, we need to understand what sin has done to us. Whether we were born into a Christian home or we were born into a home of felons, we are all by nature sinners and need to be born again. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Nobody's born righteous. Nobody's born a Christian. We are all born sinners. And whether we are the religious elite or the sinful Samaritans, we all need Jesus. And isn't it telling that the religious elite come to Jesus at night, but Jesus goes to the woman in broad daylight. Jesus isn't ashamed of us. Jesus isn't ashamed to meet you right there in the middle of the day at noon. Friends, don't be intimidated or impressed by people who seem to be successful in the world's eyes. Don't think they have a leg up on you. They don't. And conversely, don't be discouraged by people or by yourself who seem to be too far gone. You see, friends, there's really only one type of person before Jesus saves them. And that type of person is sinful and needy. Fourthly and finally, Jesus alone can satisfy our thirsty souls. Jesus alone can satisfy our thirsty souls. Now, I'm going to leave a full bullet 
few bullets in the chamber for this one, because this is just, we're going we're gonna to just, we're going to be dwelling on this throughout John. But this is the clear primary truth of this passage, especially verses 13 and 14. Let's, let's look at verses 13 and 14 again. Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever tries to satisfy themselves, whoever pursues acclaim, money, sex, power, whoever wants pleasure outside of God, whoever, whoever tries to do it their own way, whoever's trying to make themselves righteous, whoever thinks they can, you know, craft their own fig leaves to cover their shame, whoever thinks they can do it on themselves, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the only thing that will truly satisfy the Samaritan woman's soul and our soul, my soul, your soul, every soul that has ever been created is to trust, to rely on, to believe, to put your hope in. He uses the verb to drink here to symbolize all of those things. The only thing that will truly quench our souls is trust in Jesus. Why is this? Well, because we were made for this purpose, to glorify God, to worship Him, to give Him glory, to enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Catechism says. But sin made that impossible for us to do. All of us have turned away. All of us have bowed down to self, and it's turned us in on ourselves. It's, it's put us trying to strive outside of God rather than to rest in God. And this rebellion, this sin that we've all committed and that has been committed against us by other sinners around us has left us in this place where we deserve justice and judgment. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes as a man, God himself in the flesh comes as a man and lives a perfect life where we've all tried to drink from from, from dirty water, Jesus drinks from righteousness. He obeys God in his human life, and he then lays down his life on the cross to bear the wrath of God that should be ours. And he satisfies it. He removes it. He extinguishes it. And he defeats it by rising again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now he commands all of us to trust not in ourselves to drink from our own water, metaphorically, or the water of this world, but to drink, to trust, to believe in him and what he has done. Jesus satisfies the justice of God and offers us the satisfaction of trusting in him so that we will be in him. And what Jesus is saying to this woman is that. Trust in me, believe in me, drink metaphorically from the fountain that is trusting in me. I alone can satisfy. Isaiah 55 speaks metaphorically of this hundreds of years in the Old Testament before this interaction that Jesus has with this woman. Gives us this kind of picture of this spiritual water that Jesus offers to this woman and to all of us. He says in Isaiah 55 verse 1, the prophet says, come, 
everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What's the prophet saying there? He's saying, you you don't have anything that you can offer God. You can't pay for this. This this verse 55, verse 1 of Isaiah is a kind of Old Testament echo of the very gospel itself. You can't buy for yourself. You can't buy to quench your thirst of restlessness. You can't quench your shame on your own. You can't atone for your sin. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of money that you could gather. What only, the only thing you can do is come and drink from the right fountain, not from the fountains of this earth, not from the fountains of your own self-righteousness, not from the fountains of your shame, not from the fountains of your own efforts to make yourself happy in some sort of worldly pursuit. Drink from the fountain that is free, the fountain of grace, the fountain of Christ, the fountain of trusting in the Son of God. That is where you will be satisfied. And that's this text. And Jesus takes this Old Testament picture and he puts it before this woman and he puts it before you and me and he says, come and drink. Come and drink. Let's pray. Lord, as we we prepare to see a brother and sister baptized, their public proclamation of the fact that they have done this, that they're trusting in Jesus, that he alone can satisfy our soul, which means that he alone can satisfy the punishment that we deserve for our sin, and that he alone can give us the righteousness we need to stand before you, and that he alone can lead us into true joy. As they publicly proclaim this through baptism, may we be freshly encouraged and amazed at the grace that is in Christ. May unbelievers that are in this room who've never truly tasted and seen, who've never drank from this fountain of Christ, may they do that by trusting in Christ today, Lord. Give somebody a new heart. Give them, or make them thirsty for the well that can only satisfy, which is Christ. And for believers, Lord, those of us that are trusting in you, that have drank from this well, Lord, we need to come daily. We need it daily. We need need gospel hydration every hour. Rehydrate our souls, Lord, with the gospel. I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.